Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Okay, so this is uh, our next uh, chapter in the 150 chapters on the end times, and we're looking at Luke uh, 17. This is session eight in 150 uh, sessions plus that we're going to do on these different chapters. And uh, what I want to do tonight is I want to set the stage a little bit because Luke chapter 17 is one of those chapters that if you're somewhat familiar with studying the end times, you're probably still not super familiar with Luke 17. Uh, That's probably not a passage that you're particularly thinking. uh, And every time I think Luke 17, I think end times. And so we want to give a little bit of context here, um, kind of set the stage. So first thing I want to say is that in uh, Luke 17, because not the whole chapter is about the end times directly, uh, some of it is very much not, but then the bulk and the theme and the, the major flow of it is about the end times, Jesus actually teaches on the most normal Christian stuff in Luke chapter 17, and then just as simply, he pivots to talking about eschatology. He talks about these two things. He talks about repentance and sin and righteousness and redemption. He talks about these things just very fluidly, and then without skipping a breath, not skipping a beat, he jumps right into end times because it's as normal for Jesus to talk about repentance as it is for Jesus to talk about end times. And that's one of the things that I think actually stands out to me in Luke chapter 17 is how he combines these different ideas as just all part of the way the kingdom of God operates, just all very normative. And so I I was uh, struck by that as I uh, studied um, Luke um, 17 this go-round. So next thing I want to point out, for those of you guys that know uh, Luke 18 a little bit, Luke 18, the verse we've got on the wall, and the parable of the persistent widow, um, I don't have time to go into it right now. Uh, we've covered this a number of times before. But the parable of the persistent widow is actually all about the second coming. And there, uh, I'll give you the, the line here, Luke 18, 1 through 8. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's Luke 18, verse 1. Then a little bit later, now we were just told, they're supposed to always pray and not give up. That's the point of the parable. A little bit later in the parable... Jesus says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So there's that always praying thing. It's not just praying sometimes, it's praying always. And it's really clear that it's always because now Jesus reiterates, I'm talking about crying out day and night. But then he says this really interesting statement, and this is how he ends the parable. He just gets done teaching about night and day prayer, just gets done teaching about always praying. And then he says this statement, however, when the Son of Man comes, as Jesus speaking about himself, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus didn't pivot, and he's not now talking about saving faith, salvation. He's talking about, will I find people in faith with the parable that I just gave? Will I find people doing what it is that I just communicated? I just communicated a parable about always praying and not giving up, but when I come back, am I going to find my church doing that? Or are they going to actually be praying night and day? This passage is actually, in its primary focus, is about the end-time prayer movement. Now, why do I bring that up? Because these are the very next verses that follow the final verses of chapter 17. I think they missed it on the chapter break. 
and that's okay. I'm really glad somebody spent all the time to put the chapter breaks in there and the verse breaks so that we could know and we could have Bible references and bumper stickers. I'm grateful for all that. But I think that part of the reason that perhaps a chapter break uh, location was missed is because traditionally when people look at Luke 18 and they're looking at this parable of the persistent widow, they are, their primary takeaway kind of by and large is, you know, pray until God does the thing that you want him to do. Be a persistent widow. Don't stop asking God to do something. It's not exactly the context. The context is actually praying for God's purposes until he comes and doing that in a night and day manner. And don't give up. That's actually the context. So the reason I bring all that up is because I think Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8, could, should be part of chapter 17. Meaning the conversation that Jesus is having flows right into Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 1 and following with this parable, okay? And just as a little uh, transition word, he gets done with chapter 17, at least how we have recorded, and the very first word of Luke 18, 1 is, then Jesus told his disciples a parable. See, it's the same context. They're all still together in the conversation they were just having in Luke 17, and now Luke 18 begins with, and Jesus gave some more information that's related to this, okay? So all that's to kind of help set the stage a little bit for us. Now, where the chapter gets more clear that it's talking about the end times is about the halfway point, and that's where we see in Luke 17, verse 20, uh, once on being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, then Jesus answered. So he's being asked about when is the kingdom of God going to come, or when is the second coming, uh, when is the end of the age, when do we get to see the transition of this age to the next age with the kingdom? So that's kind of the most like clear pivot point in the chapter to go, now I know we're talking end times. But there's actually a pretty significant allusion to something that is uh, very much end time related in the beginning of uh, chapter 17 that I want us to look at for just a second. Oftentimes, you will read the word and there's layers of things being communicated in any Bible verse. Layers of things in a parable, layers of things. So at face value, this thing that we're going to read means don't sin and don't cause people to sin. Okay, at face value. But when you read between the lines, Jesus is actually prophesying about the Antichrist. Okay, now let's read here 17, verse 1 through 2. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Well, who is going to do the worst job of this verse in human history? The Antichrist. He is going to be the fulfillment of everything negative Jesus said don't do. Now, was Jesus speaking directly about the Antichrist? No, but I think that definitely that's in the water. He's alluding to it, okay? And, uh, and so anyway, just another little kind of a tip-off. Okay. So hopefully now we got just a little bit of the context of, of Luke chapter 17, and now we can jump into some of the verses and some of the, the verbiage. The coming kingdom. I've kind of got this uh, session divided up into a few sections, uh, this next one being the coming kingdom. And that's really the big theme of the end times. So whenever you think about the coming of the kingdom of God, that's as end times as it gets. 
Because you're talking about the king who will rule a kingdom is going to come back and he is going to enforce his kingdom. When Jesus came the first time, he did not enforce his kingdom. He was not viewed as in charge by the majority of anybody. When Jesus comes back, he will be known to be the guy in charge of everything. Every knee will bow, every tongue can bow, everyone will know Jesus is in charge, he's a king on a throne, and he's enforcing a kingdom. So when we talk about the coming of the kingdom, that is absolutely the most like critical point of the end times. It is the coming of the king and the kingdom that he will oversee. So just as a little you know, frame of reference, for anybody that's a little bit uh, apprehensive about the end times or a little freaked out by some of the judgments or stuff, something like that, I just want to tell you, yes, those are part of the story, but it's not the point. The point is the king is coming back. And when he comes back, he's bringing war with him. Because this king has to do a hostile takeover of the planet. And that war includes angels with swords, and it also includes judgments from the sky. But the whole war context is because there's such a violent upheaval of humanity against God, against the kingdom of God, against Jesus. It says they're going to declare war against the Lamb. So the lamb, who is the king, he's going to come and he's going to enforce his kingdom. And so there is a lot of upheaval. So when you think about the end times, you'd be better served to think about a foreign king coming and taking over a country called Earth. And that foreign king is Jesus. And he's coming with all of his armies and all of the power of heaven that he, he can release. My point here is the subject of the coming kingdom is synonymous with the end times. When you think end times, think the king is coming. Don't think bad thing, judgment, deception, all those things as your primary point. Think the king is coming. Okay, so a Pharisee asked Jesus the question. I just got to, you got to imagine Jesus just loves it when he gets asked about this. Because there was such misunderstanding, there was such misconceptions about what the kingdom coming would look like. Because here's what the Jews in that hour thought, and specifically this Pharisee that's asking the question. Here's what they thought. And with biblical basis to think it, just incomplete. Here's what they thought. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to take over Rome because Rome is currently taking over Israel. And the Messiah is going to come and be the king of all the kings. He's going to come and be a military hero. And he is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem, meaning the current leadership, Rome, has to go. So there was such a, a desire in that generation for the Messiah to come, not even for biblical promises and for the purposes of God, but just so that they wouldn't be oppressed by Rome anymore. And so Jesus is being asked the question, hey, if you're a teacher, if you are, you know, are a prophet, if you're one claiming to be the Messiah, you should be an expert on this. Talk to me about the kingdom of God coming. I want to understand what your take is on this. And so Jesus replied in some very interesting ways. He, he takes full advantage of the misunderstanding, and he goes, you know what? The way I see it here is you just gave me a microphone and a platform to preach. So I am now going to explain to you truth and reality about the kingdom of God coming. And I want you to take note. I want you to, to pay attention. You just, the guy, everybody there that day, the Pharisees and everybody else, they were not prepared for Jesus to unpack the kingdom of God coming like this. 
They were expecting a couple verses out of Isaiah. They were expecting some messianic promises. There was so much information tied to the kingdom of God coming that they were not prepared for. And so Jesus starts with this. He says, first of all, if you will, this is uh, middle of page two, letter C. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is. So the first thing that Jesus does is he, I, he goes, you know what? I need to drive home the point that you guys understand the kingdom of God is as much of a reality, in fact, even more so, a reality of what is occurring in the human heart than it is what's going to be occurring on the outside. In fact, you won't get to participate in a positive sense what's going on externally, what's going on in culture, what's going on in the establishment of government. You won't even get to be a part of that in any positive way if you don't have the kingdom of God internally. And so he's identifying this first component. He says, first of all, the kingdom of God, it is an internal thing at its primary core. And that's something that, that you guys need to understand to this, this, this audience that he's saying. He says it this way in Luke 17, 21, because the kingdom of God is within you. And that was just, that was such a shocking idea and such a shocking statement to them because they're imagining military leader come and take over Rome and establish government. And here's the guy who, for the last however many hundreds of years, he's the closest thing, he's like the, the first guy up, the closest thing to a possible Messiah figure that they've even heard of or seen. And his first statements are bizarre. He says, the kingdom of God is inside of you. And you just imagine they're immediately dismissing him. Because his purpose is to tie the end of the age to the reality of the heart. He wants people to understand this kingdom has got to be operating inside of you before you're going to get to experience it on the external. Then he says another strange statement. He uses this term frequently about himself, the son of man. We don't have a lot of time to touch on it tonight, but it's an interesting study because it's a really mysterious phrase that that says a lot of things and doesn't completely say anything, at least nothing that people were understanding. In one sense, it says, son of man. Well, this is a term that was used of Ezekiel as a prophet. So he's trying to help people to understand, I am an important figure in Israel's history. I am a, I'm an important part of the God storyline, the son of man. But son of man also is such an interesting statement for those of us that know Jesus because it so identifies him as a human and not just God. He is a son of man. He is, he is a human with blood and, and all, the, you know, all the natural issues, and, and he's faced every trial, and, and uh, you know, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's, one, he's a man. He is the son of man. But it's also this bit, this like mysterious statement. It's like, what else are you trying to say with that statement? What are you, what are you trying to say that you're not saying? And Jesus is actually using the term as, a, as one of the, uh, the terms of Messiah, of Messianic prophecy. And again, not everybody caught that. And part of the reason he used this term is because of the measure of misunderstanding that it would present would keep him from getting crucified the first day. Because if he showed up and said, I'm the son of God, I'm fully God and fully man, they would have crucified him day one. But he kept that information very quiet. And even those that had that revelation, he told them to be quiet. So he calls himself the son of man, okay? All right, so he says first, the kingdom is going to come into your midst. Then he says, now we're in part three here, top of page three. <clears throat> so there's going to be a time delay, 1722. The disciples said to him or asked him, the time is coming 
Uh, and uh, I'm sorry. Then he said to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. This is another interesting detail because this is Jesus answering the question about the coming of the kingdom because that was the question. He's still answering that question, but now he's talking entirely about himself and the journey that he has in relationship to the coming of that kingdom. And the first thing that he tells him, or rather this next thing that he tells him is, I got some bad news for you guys. There's going to be quite a time delay that you are not prepared for at all. It says, the time is coming when you will long to see. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you eat ice cream right now, do you long for ice cream 15 minutes later, it probably takes a while to long for ice cream again because there's a time delay. So the whole thought process of Jesus saying, you will long to see one of the days the Son of Man is, it's been quite some time since I've been around. Okay? He says, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You'll long, and even though you're longing, you won't see it because there's going to be a significant time delay of the coming of the kingdom of God, because it's actually going to happen at the end of the age. And in the meantime, there's going to be this pretty healthy gap of time, and it's part of the whole kingdom age. And that's part of the reason he's helping everybody to understand this whole kingdom of God thing, you really need to lock in that it's an internal reality, internal and eternal because if the only version of the kingdom of God that you have got a vision for is the one where the Messiah comes, you're going to have a 2,000-year disappointment. You need to have the revelation that the kingdom of God is now, it's active, and it's within you. And yes, there's coming a day when the king will come to rule that kingdom. All right. Then he says another thing that's just unthinkable to the Jews that are hearing this. He says in uh, 1725, says, but first, before you have this whole longing for the you know, Son of Man coming and everything, he says, uh, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is so intense. You just think about from the Jewish perspective, they're all excited about their hero, their Messiah, who's coming. And the guys that are with him right here, I mean, the main disciples, they're locking into this. And they're going, okay, so we're going to have to wait a while. That's kind of intense. And then he says, no, you don't understand. I am going to suffer intensely and be rejected. This is an unthinkable thought because it's not rejected by the, by the heathens, by the lost, by the Gentiles. It's rejected by the Jews. The thought process for a Jew that the Jews would reject their long-awaited Messiah was just unthinkable. Furthermore, that their long-awaited Messiah would suffer? No, 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 no. Our guy is going to be awesome. There's no suffering. Our guy is going to be a military conqueror. He's not going to have any suffer moments. And he's not going to be misunderstood. We're all going to rally around him. We're going to love him because he's the Messiah. He goes, no, you're actually, the whole generation's going to turn against me. And I'm going to suffer many things. And that's actually the, the time delay I told you about. It's actually your fault. You're going to kill me. This is really intense information about the way that the kingdom of God is going to go. Then he says, people will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. Now, this is Jesus now, because he's kind of going back and forth between the hour that he's living in and the kingdom of God coming in its fullness at the end of the age. He's bouncing back and forth. This is now at the end of the age. He says, you're going to hear people say, there he is, there's the Messiah. And there he is over there. And he says, you're going to hear this said. He says, don't go running after it. I guarantee you 100% of the time that that said, it's not me. He said, that is not how the kingdom of God is going to come. 
Because remember, that's the question. What's it like? Tell us what the signs are. Give us some information about the coming of the kingdom of God. What's that going to be like? He says, you'll be told there's this guy over here. We are confident he's the Messiah. If you're ever told that, reject the information. He says, or over here, it's going to be kind of in the, in the wind. It's going to be something in the generation that he's going to be coming to that it's going to be said. He says, oh, guys, listen, I'm going to make this really simple for you. The kingdom of God is coming when the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning with flashes that lights up the sky from one end to the other. You will not miss that. He says, you would miss maybe many other versions of my coming. Let me tell you how different it is, my coming and the kingdom of God coming versus everybody else that's going to claim to be the Messiah and what their coming is going to look like. When they come, someone's going to have to tell you, hey, there's this guy and he's great, George over there, he does signs and wonders. It's like, it's not George, I promise. You go, well, what about this guy over here? It's not like that. Well, who's going to announce your coming? The sky will scream at you. You will see me in the sky. I will light up the sky from one end to the other. No one will mistake it. You don't even need to try to find me. I'll find you. Oh, and also when I come, there's an involuntary trip up into the clouds. All of a sudden when I come, you don't have to wonder if it's me or not. Did you get resurrected body? Because if you did, it's me. If you didn't get a resurrected body and join me up in the very well-lit sky... It's not me. Really simple. These are also very challenging new ideas to the Jewish mindset. Because they're like, our Messiah doesn't fly in the sky. Our, our Messiah is grounded. And he, he doesn't have the little light switch anointing where he just turns it on and lights go crazy in the sky. Like, and Jesus is telling them, you asked me the question, I have really great news, also some bad news, also a time delay. Really, I just want to give you the truth because I love you and I want you to understand the chronology of events. It's going to get really dark. It's going to stay that way for a long time, and then it's going to get really light. And until it gets really light, until I appear in the sky, you don't need to go looking for me. I will make it so clear. Wow. That is a really powerful answer to the question, what's it like when the kingdom of God comes? Then he gives another bizarre answer. I'm telling you, you look at Luke chapter 17, and Jesus gives the bizarrest answers imaginable to the question, what does the kingdom of God coming look like? Remember, they're all expecting a localized military hero who gains a little bit more following, gains a little bit more following, and eventually becomes the leader of Israel, kicks Rome out. That's what they're thinking. Jesus' answers are like from Mars, okay? Here's his next Mars answer. He says this, Oh, you know, it'll be just like the days of Noah and Lot. No, no, we didn't like the days of Noah or Lot. Those were bad days. He's like, yeah, it's going to be just like that. No, don't. Stop this man. Take the microphone back from his hand. Take the platform away. Make the bad man stop saying these words. So this is what Jesus says. This is ominous. This is so crazy that this is his answer to what's it like when the kingdom of God comes. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, top of page four, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Oh, snap. That means we got more bad news on the horizon. A couple verses later, it was in the same. Uh, it was the same in the days of Lot. 
it will be just like this on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. Oh my gosh. So we've got Jesus now referencing it will be my coming and the, and the situation around my coming will feel reminiscent of Noah and the flood. Oh no. But just in case you didn't like that analogy or you could somehow confuse it and go, maybe he means flood of the spirit. It's a good thing. He says, oh, just also in case you were paying attention, it'll be like Lot when, when brimstone and fire fell down on Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be like that when I come. Oh, no, this is awful. So these guys are getting the shock of their life in revelation of all these things they had absolutely no idea were connected to the coming of the Messiah and the breaking in of the kingdom. Now, just a couple of points here. I don't want to go deep into it, but in the days of Noah, angels made babies with the daughters of men. There were actual hybrid angel-human things on the earth, referred to as the Nephilim. And, I mean, you can read about it in Genesis. It's like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I would really like to scratch that out, but it says it right there. Wow, they went and they mated with the, son, with the daughters of, of, of humans. I was like, wow, okay. Why is that bad? Well, for every reason. That's like sexual immorality at its peak. I don't know that it gets much weirder than that, Okay. And God says, I'm going to judge the earth and flood it when dealing with sexual immorality at that level, okay? But then you've got Lot. Well, in Lot's situation, you've got these two angels that are staying there at his house, and it says 100%, it says all the men of the town, all, all, gathered around the house and wanted to make very inappropriate graphic advances towards these angels, that's what it says, 100% of the men. So you've got all measure and manner of wickedness and evil there. And Jesus says, hey, if you want to know one of the signs of the times, you're going to watch sexual perversion go bazonkers. And I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with it. It will be like it was in the days of Lot and like it was in the days of Noah. Furthermore, I'm not going to show up nice. I'm going to show up with crazy judgments to deal with the issues. So part of the drama that now the, you got to imagine from the Jewish perspective, they're kind of like half excited about this because they want God on their side. They want God to be the God of Genesis, the God of Exodus. They want God to do those, those things, but they're like, oh my gosh, you're telling me before the, before the Messiah comes, the context of the earth is going to be total chaos and darkness related to every, uh, every version of evil and immorality and all that. And Jesus is like, yes, exactly. And furthermore, I want to tell you that when it reaches that level, God is going to deal with it from heaven like he dealt with it in Noah's day and in Lot's day. He's going to release supernatural judgments from heaven. Whoa. This, we just thought you were going to like say, I'm starting a campaign and a GoFundMe. Like, can, can I get a few people to sign a petition that I should be the next Messiah of Israel? And, and here he's giving them a way different story than what they were expecting. And he gives a few life lessons here. We'll end with this and then we'll break up into some discussion groups. So here's some life lessons that Jesus gives in the final generation here, all still part of uh, Luke chapter 17. Don't look back, he tells them. Escape quickly. Luke 17, 31 through 32. On that day... 
No one who is in his, uh, on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Here he is alluding to the Lot situation again. He says, when the time comes, and there's going to be moments where there's actual judgments, your job is to run away from those judgments like Lot and his wife ran away, and you are not to slow down and you're not to look back. Do you remember Lot's wife that looked back on the judgment? Run and run as fast as you can away from the judgment. There's actually going to be moments related to the judgment, and this is most specifically, though not only, related to the Antichrist setting up the abomination that caused desolation in the temple. That's an idol of himself where he's going to claim himself to be God. When that happens, he says, uh, we we learn in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and elsewhere, that people are told, run, flee the city. Well, this is the same idea. It's run and flee the city, but this one is now even specific to judgments. He's saying when these things start to happen, run. Now that's interesting because normally as believers, we're supposed to stand our ground. There's actually going to be times. There's going to be times where we're instructed, get out, get going. Now this is, you, this is directly about the believers in Jerusalem, but we can take a like kind but lesser degree piece of instruction for the whole church in the earth. And that is, there are going to be moments when things start to shift here, we're going to need to be paying attention to the Holy Spirit's leadership related to what day do we stand and what day do we run. We're going to need the leadership of the Holy Spirit because there's going to be times for both. What day do we pray for something to stop? What day do we pray for God to release judgments? There's going to be a shift and a pivot in that season where we're going to need to start really hearing a a lot more uh, uh, in tune which is part of the reason, I mean, not even part, it's a major reason why God is going to turn the church in the earth into his house of prayer. The whole church is going to be a praying people before the end of this because no one will survive if we're not. We're going to need to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. We're going to need each other. We're going to need to know how to operate in prayer and fasting and the anointing of the Spirit. All of those things are part of the way that the end time drama is going to unfold. So let's keep going. Next lesson. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Look at this, Uh, 1733. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, in the simplest definition of what's going on here, we live in a generation right now where there have been countless examples of believers that have loved God but also loved their lives. And the challenges in their generation were not so high, the consequences were not so stout that it kept them from eternity. It didn't keep them from eternity. A time is coming, however, where the consequences will be infinitely higher. And he says this, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, meaning if you are fully engaged in my kingdom purposes, not living half in, half out, That's always been a good message for every people that have loved God anywhere. Hey, don't be a half-hearted Christian. That's always been an important message. But there's a generation where the consequences shift. And Jesus goes, you cannot live half-heartedly in the generation that I return. The stakes are too high. If you love your life, you will forfeit it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. it is an, it's an exhortation to the church at the end of the age to be all in. 
to be all about the kingdom. Everything is yours, Lord. My decisions, my days, my family, everything. My finances, everything belongs to you. It's an all-in. He says, I, always, I created you to live that way in every generation. That was always the point. That was always the desire. But I'm telling you right now, you won't make it in the last generation unless you abide by this principle. Really important. Next one. God's judgments are aimed at the wicked. Look at this. This is still in the dialogue about Noah and Lot and all this stuff. And he says, he says this is how it's going to be in relationship to those judgments. Luke 17, 34-36. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. This passage isn't about the rapture. Taken is a bad thing, not a good thing in this context. Taken, he just got done saying, and everyone got, you know, died by the flood. They were taken by the flood. Taken by the flood was not a good thing. You didn't go to heaven. Those that were destroyed in Lot and uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah by the raining fire and brimstone, they were taken. They, they died. That was not a good thing. That was not a healthy thing. He says it's going to be the same way at the end, but then pay attention to the details here. This is actually great hope for believers. He says two people will be in the same bed. One will die, one will be taken, and the other will be left. The other one will not die by whatever it is that killed the one. Wait a minute. God can get that specific? Oh, yeah, he can. Absolutely. The judgments aren't aimed at the church. The judgments are aimed at the wicked that are railing against God. Now, if you don't catch this, just read with me 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9, because it interprets this passage. This is Peter giving as clear of a direct interpretation of the verse that we just read as you can find. Here it is, 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. So just think about it. We're talking about Noah. Everybody bad died. Noah and a few goodies lived. And if God did that, that's what it's saying. If God did that, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and he did that, and rescued Lot, who lived in that city. If he did that, if he did those two things, if he did the Noah thing, and if he did the Lot thing, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is Peter helping to interpret Pastor Jesus back in uh, uh, Luke 17. He's giving clarity. He's saying, you remember when Jesus taught about Sodom and Gomorrah and you know, Lot and Noah and the flood and all that? You remember he was talking about there'll be one taken and one left? I'm telling you he's good for it. He can actually protect the righteous one and bring all the wicked ones around him to death. He says, God knows how to do this. He's masterful at it. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. For those of you, because I added that one to the notes, I think after it got printed. So if you want to, write that verse down. 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9. 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9. Okay, and then the last little lesson here that we'll do and then we'll jump into some discussion is uh, the judgments are going to be global and they're going to be total. Again, this is so much information that these guys were not expecting when they're asking about, you know, voting for who's going to be Messiah. It says, they go, Lord, where? <laughs> like, you just said a lot of really bad, crazy stuff. This is nuts. We don't like any of it. 
Where? They asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. What does he mean by this? He said, this is all about judging the wicked. Where you find the wicked, you'll find this scenario. He says, there's no place to escape this. Wherever there are vultures there, you know that there's a dead body. He's saying, I am telling you right now, this is going to happen everywhere it's supposed to happen to all of those on the earth that are not in agreement with me. This is going to be the universal reality. He's describing global judgments, but he already alluded to that because he said it's just going to be like the flood. And the flood was a global judgment that affected everybody. And the reason that there were no others anywhere that got to stand on some like really, really high hill that somehow didn't make it underwater or something is because the the vultures were gathered where all the dead bodies were. Universal uh, expression of that judgment came against all those that were due it. He said, this is how it's going to be at the end of the age. It is going to be global and it's going to be total. Really intense answer to the question, Jesus, can you just go a little lighter? We just wanted like the light, fluffy version of the kingdom of God coming. It sounded like such an innocent question. Um, <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> so the, the question related to the one will be taken and the other will, left, uh, will be left, um, that thought process uh, being a, uh, typically or, or many people seeing that as a proof of the rapture happening before all the bad stuff happens. The, the thought process, it's a pre-tribulation rapture. And, uh, and so doesn't that verse speak to that? Isn't that what that's talking about? So it's really important that whenever we're looking at verses and whenever we're trying to develop theological ideas, that we don't dismiss context. Uh, we've all heard our favorite preacher quoted out of context and then thought they were a horrible person for a moment because they were quoted out of context and the context matters. And so uh, when we're talking about these, uh, this scenario, it, you can't just take one will be taken, the other left outside of the context that it's in. you got to look at, well, what was the context? Who, Jesus, what were you saying? What was he describing? And he was describing the scenario of what it would be like for people... <clears throat> as it was during Noah's day and as it was during Lot's day. And he describes it and he says, listen, the guys that were on my team were able to uh, uh, escape what was happening. Everyone else was destroyed, was taken by the judgments. They were, they were killed. And so the, uh, the, and it's even clearer, if you have any question about this thought process, it's even clearer in the Matthew 24 account. Like, it's even clearer. So I want to encourage you to go back and look at that. But the idea of taken in the context isn't a good taken. It's a bad taken. If you're taken, that means something bad happened to you, not something good happened to you. And so, uh, so then the second part of the question was, okay, so what does it look like then for if, you know, judgments are hitting a house what does it look like for one person to be taken and the other to be left in regards to like killed or judged? Well, we've got the, the same you know, thought process and scenario um, uh, in multiple places where God is able to pinpoint and highlight a person. So think about Ananias and Sapphira and the lie they told. Now, on that day, God was going to release death to people that deserved it in that context. And the person sitting right next to them, they didn't die. 
there, there's this like the ability of God to fine tune and hone in judgment on the wicked, which is the reason I read that Second Peter verse to you. That God, who has done this before, He is able to hold the uh, to protect the righteous and hold the wicked for judgment, and to be able to to release both of those in the same uh, bit. One of the uh, best ways to look at this, really, in the most specific example, was the final plague of Exodus. So every household that uh, that had the uh, the um, Egyptians, every household that had the Egyptians in it, suffered the loss of their firstborn that night. But none of the households of the Jewish people, because they listened, they were obedient. Who knows? I would bet there will be a measure of listen and be obedient. I would bet that that plays into it, just like it did with that plague or many other times. It's not like when God's going to do something that he then removes himself from the whole partnership thing. Partnership is always a part of the kingdom of God. So I would bet there's going to be instructions. There's going to be things that we're supposed to do, like you know, sleep extra far over. Why don't you sleep on the couch tonight? I, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I don't know. There's going to be information, I'm sure, that will, be, that will play into the scenario. But God is really able in the scenario of like, let's even go with, you know, asteroids and meteors or whatever, okay? He's really able to precisely have it hit one part of a room and not the other part of a room. I mean, that's actually not hard for him. So if you want to get down to that meticulous of an answer, uh, he's able. He's, he's shown himself able again and again throughout history to be able to judge the wicked and keep the righteous safe. How do we avoid misunderstanding prophecies the way that the Pharisees did? Um, you know, it's really interesting the, the benefit and the difficulty that we have in our generation and really all generations since Christ. We often think, man, I really wish I was there in the generation that Jesus was alive so I could have seen him and heard his words. I actually think it's a lot easier for us to have a Bible and read all those stories and learn all the lessons that he wanted the rest of humanity forever and ever to have. I really think it's actually easier for us to be us than it would have been to have been in that hour because of all the misunderstanding and, and confusion. Jesus addresses so much of the misunderstanding and confusion in the New Testament teachings. And so we have now the Bible to reflect on. So what we need to do then is we need to pay attention to what did he rebuke the Pharisees about? What did he rebuke the church about? Not just the Pharisees, but what, what admonitions are there on how to have a clean uh, you know, mind to be able to perceive things? What does it look like to live with the spirit of revelation on our life? What do we need to do to present uh, ourselves that we could be recipients of the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Those things aren't just natural realities. So what do we do in light of the teachings of the scripture to learn the lessons to position ourselves? I think it's read the Bible and do it uh, is, is really the biggest answer. I, I would think that the, the lessons specifically related to the Pharisees, we can look at those lessons and we can learn the things that he was teaching like, oh, it matters about the kingdom of God within me. Oh, it matters that I would be a person that's blameless. Oh, it matters that I would learn to be a leader that lifts a finger and doesn't put heavy burdens on people. You know, those sorts of lessons. And so I think that actually we have a tremendous advantage over the Pharisees because we have the Pharisees rebuke written down in the Bible for us to read chapter after chapter after chapter of their, uh, of their rebuke. The, the simplest thing in answer, I mean, that's, that's a direct answer, but I think the simplest thing is we need to read our Bibles and be open to the Holy Spirit speaking 
and not having our own interpretation. I think as soon as we go, I want this Bible to mean what I want it to mean, we have a high propensity to wind up off course. Like the Pharisees really wanted Jesus to be ready to take over Rome right then. So that's the lens that they've got. So then they weren't open to whatever it is he wanted to say. So I think that that's a, a, a kind of a broader uh, answer to the question after I gave the narrow one. So why did Jesus, in answer to the question uh, about the coming of the kingdom of God, why, why, not that he did it, he did it. Why did he do it? Why did he focus first on the kingdom of God is within you? I really think it goes back to uh, that statement I made um, during the teaching about there's going to be a 2,000-year gap. We're still in the gap right now. We are currently in the gap related to how do we interface, how do we interact with the kingdom of God? What does it look like? Because we've not seen him come back and take over the earth yet. So our version of the kingdom of God and the version that Jesus wanted Christianity to have from that point all the way until the second coming is the primary matter is what's going on in your heart, soul, and, and mind. What is going on on the interior? How submitted to you? How yielded are you to the Holy Spirit? How submitted are you to the teachings of Christ? How, how yes is your heart towards what God says is good, true, and righteous? Well, hello there. You can have this. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, how submitted are you to the fullness of God's purposes in the kingdom? And, and so Jesus is highlighting that, and then he goes, and now I'll tell you a little bit about kind of what you're asking about, but I really want to make sure we're all on the same page because if you're not on my team, if you don't have the kingdom of God operating within you, it really doesn't matter if you know the chronology of events. You're toast. You're in deep trouble. You need to know what's happening uh, by... By in the, on the interior. Like, we need to be on the same page. You need to have the Holy Spirit living in you. You need to be submitted to my purposes and to the Word of God. And so I think that Jesus was actually, like, broadcasting what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ, is the kingdom of God has got to be internalized first, and then we can start talking about facts and dates and details and all that stuff. Um, um, okay, so look, here, here's the thing. When you go line upon line like this, none of this stuff makes sense. It's really not complicated. You just you slow down a little bit, think about it, pray about it, cross-reference. The Bible is your best friend in relationship to trying to understand Bible passages. Cross-reference it to other verses. So you heard me reference Matthew 24 a few times tonight because I'm looking at Matthew 24 because it's helping interpret Luke 17. You know, I brought in the Second Peter verse because it's a direct interpretation of, of what we just read there in, in Luke 17. So as you're trying to understand these things, use the Bible, not the Internet, Please, please use the Bible and not whatever your favorite commentary is. Use the Bible because it actually interprets itself and it, it does make things clear because Jesus wanted for us to go on the journey of looking at what he said, diving deeper and gaining revelation about what he said so that we could understand where things are headed. Okay. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tpr dfw.com. Thank you.